0: The Department of Labor came out with new regulations that essentially said we're going to look at two primary factors in determining whether someone's an employee or an independent contractor. That's Mark Smith, shareholder and
1: attorney in business law at Rhodes McKee. You might remember him from the last episode where we talked about attracting and retaining employees. Today. We're discussing work classifications.
0: The regulations look at, first, the nature and degree of control over the work that the person's going to perform. So, for example, if you were to hire me to come in and paint your house, you would say, you know, here's the rooms I want painted, here's the colors, go at it. And I would be an independent contractor because you're not saying... Here's the paint, here's the brushes, here's the hours I want you here, here's all the details associated with it. But if I show up and I have a crew of people with me and I tell them all those same things and I treat them as independent contractors, chances are I made a mistake in terms of my my classification because those individuals... Um, don't have any control over the work. They're following my instructions as their boss as to how to paint, when to paint, the means and methods. Hey, you know, put a drop cloth down. Hey, put masking tape around the window, all the, the details associated with it. So it's an issue of control over the work itself. And if, if you put it in the, the context of businesses, someone will say, I want you to come in and I want you to perform this task and then the issue is are you controlling how they perform it or are you just giving them the task and leaving it up to them to do it. Today on Conversations with the Business Attorney,
1: Mark and I are discussing a couple key issues around work classifications. When should you classify someone as an employee and when should you classify someone as a contractor What are the consequences of doing this incorrectly or incorrectly classifying someone? And how do you lower your company's liability by making sure you have the best classifications from the start? I'm your host and fellow business owner, Jeff Large. Let's pick the conversation up with Mark's example on what
0: constitutes an employee versus a contractor. As a business, I call in an IT vendor, for example, and say, hey, my computers don't work, fix them. They're an independent contractor doing it. But if I hire someone and say, I want you here from nine to five every day, and I want you to go through each of these machines, and I want you to you know, handle all the employee issues associated with tech, then they're, they're going to be an employee. That's going to be the proper classification. The other thing that the um, Department of Labor regulations looks at most heavily is the individual's opportunity for profit or loss in connection with doing the work. So if in my my painting example, I have this crew of people working for me and I say, I'm going to pay you 10 bucks an hour for doing this work, that individual doesn't really have the opportunity to control their profit or loss other than by the amount of work they do. You know, I'm going to work eight hours or 10 hours or six hours, and each of those has a financial consequence. But if I say, I'm going to bid on your project and I'm going to do your work, um, this painting work, just using the same example, I can decide I'm going to do it myself and I'm going to do this for $5,000. I can choose to come in every day and, and work to get the $5,000 job done. Or I can bring in six other people and knock it out in, in a day and control how much profit or loss I, I make on that particular job. And the same is true with you know people working for different companies.
1: Now, at this point of the conversation, I began wondering if there were set standards for determining the difference between someone who is an employee versus someone who is a contractor. Now, beyond the variables of control that they have to do their job or their ability to earn a profit, Mark walks through how this can often be a case-by-case determination.
0: It's a fact-intensive analysis every time you look at it. And I mean, those are the the two primary factors is, is the control. And the ability to earn a profit. But the courts and the Department of Labor and even the IRS look at other factors to sort of paint a more full picture. So they look at the the permanence or impermanence of the relationship. If you have someone that's assisting you every single day from eight to five, they never work for anybody else, and they've done it, you know, for 30, 60, 90, or you know, days or a year you know, chances are that, that'll that tilt towards them being an employee rather than a contractor because, you know, the, they provide their service solely to you and it's more in the form of a permanent relationship than a temporary one-off kind of thing. The courts in the Department of Labor also look at the skill involved in the process. If you have someone coming into your factory as a quote, independent contractor, close quote, and all they're doing is is making widgets the same way every single day, and there's no skill or ability involved, chances are they're gonna be an employee, not an independent contractor, because there's no judgment, there's no exercise of control over the work. Do certain of those variables weigh heavier than other of those variables? The first two that I talked about weigh the heaviest, and that is the, the nature and degree of control over the work and the ability to control whether profit or loss arises from the work. Those mm-hmm. are the ones that the new regulations say are, are the most critical factors in getting into the analysis. And the others are kinda, let's fill in the rest of the picture if those don't give us a clear direction. And that becomes necessary because people are creative and innovative, and so they'll put together a contract that makes it look like someone's an independent contractor. And you know it'll say on paper that you have control, and you have this, and you have that. But what really is going on here is that the person's an employee, they're not an independent contractor. Mm-hmm. And there, there are huge financial incentives to have someone as an independent contractor as opposed to an employee. Now, again, determining whether someone is an employee or an
1: independent contractor can be confusing for a business owner. Fortunately, Mark gives some more examples to help bring some clarity to this issue.
0: It's difficult in the abstract to just come up with a bright line, sort of, this is an employee, this is an independent contractor. I mean, the regulations are over 200 pages long. And so they have given some examples within the regulations that or sort of tease out that difference. So for example, in the trucking industry, you have owner-operators, you know, they own their own truck, they agree to take a job or not take a job, but the logistics company that may hire them and match them with a load that needs to go from A to B may put a GPS device on their truck to track where they are, they may put a governor on their truck to control their speed, because those are are things that are necessary to meet regulatory requirements. In that example, the owner-operator is still an independent contractor, even though he or she is being subject to being tracked as to where they are and is being subject to speed limitations because of, of the regulations, and may even be subject to delivery deadlines. They're agreeing that I will deliver this load from here to there, but how they do it, you know, it's kind of up to them. They can decide, do I, do I eat at McDonald's or Burger King along the way? Do I follow a trunk line load or a freeway? You know, how do I get there? Um, they, they have some independence that's associated with that. As opposed to, you know, you have the same truck driver, and now they get their their paycheck from the company that owns the truck. You know, they're in this essentially the same type of vehicle doing the same sort of work, but the company... Is saying you know on on this day you're going to deliver parts to Ford and on this day you're going to deliver them to GM or you're going to deliver pizza ingredients to Spartan Nash. They specifically control what loads they pick up, how and when they deliver them, the uh, dollars per hour they get paid, or the cents per mile or dollars per mile these days. So there's a lot more control as opposed to someone that owns their own vehicle and it's just subject to some limited control in terms of how they do their work.
1: Mhm. Mhm.
0: It sounds like I don't want to create a false
1: sense of what it is, but as the employer perhaps the more control I have over the situation the more I should be considering if this
0: is an employee or not. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, more control equals much higher likelihood of employer employee status what about when
1: there's situations where processes are involved? Let's say, is there is there any notable difference between an employer-enforced process versus like a collaboratively developed process, the worker bringing their own process to the table?
0: Probably the latter, where the employee or the person doing the service brings the process to the table. They're more likely an independent contractor than if they're simply implementing a process that the person paying for it wants them to do. So you know, if you're just implementing the the work that the employer wants, chances are you're an employee. I think about even going back to say you're like a painting or maybe a home construction example. I mean, the construction industry is probably uh, one of the areas where we see, probably the most abuse in terms of the employee versus independent contractor um, relationship. So if you have a general contractor residential builder and he or she literally uses the same framing crew, the same painters, the same drywallers, the same shinglers on every single job and those individuals don't give bids for the work, they don't give estimates for the work, they don't give invoices for the work, um, they show up when and where required, and chances are they're employees. Mm-hmm. But you know, if, if you have a drywall company that works for 10 different general contractors and gives an estimate, yeah, I'll do the drywall on this house for X amount of dollars. And they do that for several different general contractors. You know, chances are they are independent contractors. Mm-hmm. So even if it's a single person, you don't need a company to be an independent contractor. It can be, you know I'm, I'm a drywaller. I, I work for whatever residential builder wants to hire me. and I give estimates and, and I do the work and I give an e- invoice when I'm done and I you know I bill for it and you know i i control how profitable it is because maybe i show up by myself or i show up with three buddies Mm -hmm. and we knock it out and you know i obviously takes less time if i have more people and and of course i got to figure out how much to pay them and still make money doing it but Can I do this work for this amount of money and make a profit on it?
1: Okay. Yeah. Let me, a perfect example. Let me kind of back up a little bit. What I was referring to or what I uh, failed to clarify was more of as I'm a homeowner and I hire like a team to come and do their thing. Is there much of a difference between, like we said, of, hey, I need this room painted? and then that team brings all their supplies and does their thing versus me saying, hey, I need this room painted. I would love it done by this deadline. Clarifying, like, you're gonna tape
0: off everything, right? You're gonna do two coats, right? Like, clarifying all those things, does that change the dynamic? No, because it's a one-off kind of relationship. It's not a repetitive relationship. As opposed to, you know, I'm reporting to, you know, the contractor that hired me and the contractor now tells me all of those details. That makes me more like an employee of the contractor Mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, I'm just meeting with this homeowner once and they've got this list of demands and I'm agreeing to them. That doesn't make me their employee. I've spent a lot of time getting clear on the
1: distinction between who is an employee and who is a contractor, but why? Mark explains that there are big consequences for business owners who do not get this right.
0: So there are huge consequences of, of getting it wrong. People hire independent contractors or classify them as independent contractors to avoid all kinds of regulatory compliance. I um, mean there's, you know, the the FICA and FUTA that gets paid in terms of the paycheck. There's the immigration screening that comes along with hiring employees, you know, the I9s, the W-2s, the Social Security Visa kinds of things the application of the, the federal regulatory statutes, uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, for example, which would require you to pay a minimum wage and overtime to employees. So you don't have to pay to, to independent contractors. The implementation of things like the Family Medical Leave Act, the Affordable Care Act, the ADA, a lot of those are triggered by how many employees you have. So if you think you're avoiding that regulatory compliance by calling what's really an employee an independent contractor, and you get it wrong, the consequence is the fines and penalties associated with correcting that circumstance. We see it most often in the Fair Labor Standards Act where someone will classify someone as an independent contractor that's really an employee, and they'll have them work 60 or 80 hours a week, and they'll pay them the full You know, hourly rate they agreed to pay them, but they don't pay them overtime because, hey, they're not an employee. I don't have to pay, you know, overtime over 40. Well, if they're wrong and the employee files a complaint with the Department of Labor or the Department of Labor itself does an audit and determines that these people are underpaid, you have not only the obligation to pay the unpaid overtime but up to two times the unpaid overtime plus the attorney's fees associated with pursuit of that claim. And so that, that creates a, a real problem, a financial problem for the employer, because if they are found liable for even a dollar of unpaid overtime, the other side gets all of its attorney's fees. I've had numerous examples where clients were maybe $15,000 shy in terms of paying overtime and end up with an $80,000 attorney fee being imposed against them. So that's just one example. How do you advise going about this then if if we're unclear? You really need to consult with with counsel and go through the details of what this relationship looks like. There's also the Internal Revenue Service has a form called the SS-8 that at least for purposes of the Department of Internal Revenue can be used for a determination as to whether the IRS will uh, consider the person to be an employee or independent contractor. The downside is it takes six to eight months for the IRS to make that determination in the best of times, and the relationship may have come and gone before, you know, the determination was made, and you're kind of self-reporting that, you know, you have this circumstance. And so if you've handled it incorrectly, you've given them the smoking gun that finds, finds the way to you. But if you want to kind of do it in the abstract and you have t- the luxury of time to determine how to classify this, this individual before they start, that's one way of doing it. Still feeling a little confused? Maybe a little scared?
1: Don't worry. Mark goes on to explain some helpful tips and truths to
0: lower your company's liability. Almost every individual that you hire, if you have a company, to do work that's core to your company is an employee. So if it's it's part of what your company does, it's not some ancillary one-off sort of project and you hire someone to do it, chances are they're gonna be an employee. So if your company does printing and, and you hire someone to come in to, to set up your presses every morning, chances are they're an employee. Even though you may say, well, you're an independent contractor, I am only hiring you for this one task that happens, you know two hours every morning between 8 and 10. You know, if, if it's every day and it's integral to what you do, they're going to be an employee. So, the, the the default, really, the, the easiest thing is the default position should be, if I have a company and I'm hiring someone to do some of my core work, chances are they're an employee. Let's move to
1: types of employees. So, mm-hmm. let's say we've determined, for whatever reason, that we're gonna have employees. You've said a couple times now, you've alluded to the differences
0: between a salaried employee and an hourly employee. Right. How does that break down? So, the regulations for the Department of Labor create three what are known as salaried exempt positions. So those are roughly speaking professional supervisory and administrative positions. They're somewhat self-evident. I mean, a professional position, doctor, lawyer, CPA, that sort of thing, if, if they are on your payroll the chances are they're going to be salaried exempt, and salary exempt simply means you set a salary, they work however many hours are required to complete the task, they get paid you know the same amount, whether it takes them 20 or 80 to do it, and there's no overtime obligation associated with their work over 40 hours. Those same sort of rules uh, apply to the other two categories of, of exempt work, administrative work. So things like the HR department or the OSHA compliance department, you know, people that, that are involved in administering the, the work, but not on an hourly basis, uh, typically can can be exempt from overtime as well. And then the third is supervisory. So you have shop foreman or, a, you know, a, a manager even several levels of, of management would, would qualify, but you have to supervise at least five people in order to fit that, that exemption. And so the courts and the Department of Labor look at whether the person fits one of those exempt categories or not. And if they don't, then the, they have to be paid on an hourly basis. People you know, can get paid on a salary basis if they're not exempt but they you know, still need to be paid overtime. So sometimes internally, politically, it's best to say someone's a salaried employee, they get the same amount every week, but that's really only a description of the, the amount of hours times their hourly rate to to come up with that salaried amount. But if they are not in one of these exempt positions, if they work over the 40 hours, they have to be paid overtime. So some people just don't like being called an hourly employee. So fine, we'll call you a salary employee. You're just not salaried exempt. That's the sort of general distinctions between the hourly and salary. Mm -hmm. What about perhaps pros and cons
1: of these different types of positions As as we're evaluating how to fill out our company? What other things should I be keeping in mind?
0: Well, the salaried positions, the salaried exempt positions are are the ones where the amount of work is is going to vary uh, typically on the high side of, of 40 hours. And you want to have the ability to have someone that does have the obligation to work more than 40 hours if that's what it takes to get their job done but you know what your financial exposure is associated with that. It's the amount of salary that you've committed to pay. Whereas, you know, someone who's doing a repetitive task, sometimes, you know, the client orders are gonna require it to go over 40 hours, then okay, we'll, we'll pay the the overtime associated with that. I mean, you really kind of have to look at what the average number of hours are that are gonna be expected of the person to determine Are we better off having them as hourly or salary? So, you know, for example, I I told you earlier that HR could be a salaried position, could also be an hourly position. You could say, all I need is a part-time sort of person, 10 hours a week, 20 hours a week. I'll pay them an hourly rate rather than having to meet the statutory minimum salary, which is now in the mid-30s. I'll pay them 20 bucks an hour for 20 hours a time. If they are gonna work 40 hours or more on a consistent basis, you're probably better off making them salary than hourly because you'll be bumping into that overtime obligation.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe to kick it back over to you more, what are some of the most frequently asked questions you receive on this topic of employee classification?
0: Well, right now, we're not receiving all that many. When the Obama administration was implementing a change to the salary requirements, we fielded all kinds of questions regarding who really qualified as, as salary to exempt, and how do we avoid having to pay the additional amount? Because it, it went from Literally um, in the low twenties to the mid forties was the the increase in salary, and a lot of companies just couldn't support that. So you know, through litigation, the numbers, the the regulation got um, enjoined by a, a federal district court in Texas and put on hold, and then ultimately uh, implemented during the Trump administration. It, in the mid-30 range as the, the base salary number that has to be paid for everyone that's within one of these exempt categories. And so then the questions reverted back to, we can live with this salary range, but now we have to determine are these individuals properly classified as salary exempt, or are we trying to be too over-inclusive and putting someone that supervises one other person as salaried exempt as a supervisor. So now we look at the the kind of nuts and bolts of how does this job description fit within those exempt categories? And it's really literally just going through the job description and comparing it to the hallmarks that the Department of Labor has established for purposes of each of those exempt positions. There are other exempt positions we haven't talked about. They're different. I mean, they're like commission salespeople and that sort of thing um, that, that have to be looked at. But the big ones are the ones I already mentioned.
1: Yeah. And sort of in that same vein, what are what are some things that maybe you wish employers knew or thought about more went before they came to speak to you about these issues?
0: It's always more difficult when the bullet has already been fired and the person is already on staff and working and some time has gone by and there's potential exposure already. What we hope that they think about is, hey, I'm creating a new position. Help me understand how I can categorize this position. Should it be salaried exempt? Should it be hourly? And and how can we maybe tweak the job description to, to fall one way or the other. And it's not just the job description, it's how the job is actually performed. But it's it's always easier when when we get the issue on the front end as opposed to, you know, we already have some exposure here. Now what do we do and how do we rectify what we've already made a mistake on in the past? And so it, it's like anything else. You know, seek counsel before you make the decision and, and it'll help you make the best decision that you don't have to worry about later on.
1: A big thanks to Mark Smith for sharing his time and wisdom on today's show. If you need help better understanding this crazy world of employee classifications, consider reaching out to Mark or one of his peers. You can learn more at RhodesMcKee.com. That link will be in the show notes. Conversations with a Business Attorney is a project from Rhodes McKee, and it's produced by Come Alive Creative. I'm your host, Jeff Large. Thanks to Rachel Workman, Isidore Nieves, Elaine Moore, and everybody who helped make this episode possible. If this episode helped you at all better understand who's a contractor and who's an employee, please do me a favor, share it with other business owners who are struggling through similar issues your share goes a long way. Thanks for listening.